Hello friends, this is Juan Pablo Herrera, church planning resident for Urban Village Church, where we seek to be bold, relevant, and inclusive. This is a podcast titled Drag and Spirituality, where we take time to listen to queer folk as they discuss their journey with religion, faith, and share their contemplative practices. There may be colorful language used during these interviews, so discretion is advised, especially if you have children. We hope you are inspired, and thank you for listening. Bendiciones. God bless. Hi there. How's it going? Bonnie Violet here, uh, queer chaplain. Um, and in case you don't know where you are, um, you were at Dragon Spirituality, uh, named and known. Um, tonight is our second episode of the series of six episodes. Um, tonight will be, um, I'm excited to be having a discussion with, with Mick Douche. And um, I will introduce you to Mick a little bit more here in a second. Um, but I just wanted to take a second to um, thank our uh, and acknowledge um, the folks who've made this possible for us this evening. So the Urban Village Church, um, located in Chicago, which has multiple locations uh, throughout the city, um, is hosting, um, along with me, uh, Queer Chaplain, a series of six interviews with six Chicago-based drag artists to discuss uh, drag and spirituality and how the two may exist um, or came about, um, exist together, exist separately, all that sort of fun stuff. Um, basically just to, um, I don't know, just get a sense to see another dimension and another layer um, to the art of drag. Um, and I think that was all I needed to say before we get going. I feel like there's something I'm forgetting, but oh, we will be having, um, we can see your questions and comments. So feel free to ask questions, um, that sort of thing along the way. Um, we'll get them and we'll respond to them as soon as we can. Um, yes. Uh, oh, and this is also like where church meets uh, drag show. So feel free to tip your king. Uh, mixed uh, Venmo is there on the screen as well as we'll share it um, more later. Um, but without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and interview or introduce our guest, Mick Douche. Hey, Mick. Hey there. How are you? How's it going? I'm good. Yourself? Good. Good. Sorry, getting myself more on screen for people. I know, right? I'm feeling like I have to adjust too. <laughs> <laughs> right, every time. Yeah. So yeah, it's going well. Happy Wednesday. Yes, thanks so much for uh, doing this uh, on our inauguration day. I didn't realize when I scheduled it a few weeks ago that that would be tonight. I mean, in the age of COVID, all days are the same, except some are a little bit better. That's, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, well, thanks so much. Um, I like to just dive right in um so and again I, I also like to start when you were um when you were little um so like i'm sure you weren't mick back in the day um but could you tell no. us a little bit about what it was like uh growing up as a young person sure uh when i was a kid i grew up in northern minnesota in a mining town one of the world's largest open pit iron ore mine everyone's very proud of that up there uh the grand canyon of the north so uh, uh, when I was young, young, I grew up in Methodist church and my mom just kind of volunteered around the church. Uh, vacation Bible school is probably one of my favorite things because that church did some really cool stuff. Like when we were learning about being in the belly of the whale, they made like basically the a room into the inside of the whale by hanging up trash bags and then having like fish inside to give it the like sea whale smell. And, oh, wow. and to this day, that's like my, my most memorable moment in vacation Bible school was when I was in the belly of the whale. <laughs> wow, that's 
That's that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was quite the feat, but it's I'm sure the way I remember it is far more impressive than how it was in person. I'm sure the adults who created it thought kids would never get into it. And <laughs> quite the opposite happens. Yeah, but uh, growing up up there, uh, you know, early, early childhood was cool. Like elementary school, I was popular. I was part of the popular kid group. Then my family moved to Colorado and that suddenly everything changed because new kids all get bullied. And then when we did move back home the next year, I suddenly didn't want to hang out with the popular kids because I saw what it was like to be on the other side hmm. of the situation and there was no going back. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and I don't know, it's one of those where I, I loved it up there. There's a lot of very old, old world traditions still, eating lutefisk, lefse. I studied Russian for a year, studied Finnish for like five years up there. So a lot of things that you can't experience for like Northern European, Scandinavian history that up there. Wow, that sounds, sounds really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it says, so it sounded like you, you said you enjoyed um, like Bible, like Bible vacation, Bible study or Bible school, that sort of thing. Um, I did, how, yeah. And did, did that change at some point? Uh, complicated. So, uh, my family switched from Methodist to Presbyterian very abruptly. My mom mm. got diagnosed with a brain tumor and that, uh, I hate to say it, a United Methodist pastor felt the need to tell my mom that her brain tumor was due to her sins. Oh, wow. And so we switched churches to the one that was two blocks away because really what's keeping it there methodist and presbyterian in some ways share a lot in common mm -hmm. uh very similar traditions with with mostly administrative differences and how you're saved differences but otherwise they the two can be interchanged for a lot of stuff mm -hmm. and uh go ahead. oh oh and then i was going to say and then when i was at the presbyterian church the youth group was always a bit tense because i was an outsider coming in and it was a mixed youth group with also some kids from the Episcopalian church. Hmm. Uh, it just didn't work out too well because as a professor of junior high school, like many queer people, I had bullies. They happened to be in my church youth group. So that, that led to some tension in my church life. So I spent most of junior high and high school church experience hanging out with folks who are 65 to 90, hmm. which is a bit different for a teenager very very much different um and so was so so you you were did you know you were queer when you were young or did you just feel different oh when i was a little kid i don't think i really even thought about it because i grew up in a household where my mom and dad raised me to believe that we could do anything we could be anybody we wanted to be you know princesses kill dragons too type of household and so i didn't really think about it I knew that I liked boy things. I knew that when I played make-believe, I liked to be the boy characters almost exclusively. Uh, and I, I think the biggest thing that I noticed was when my other friends were having crushes on little boys, I was not. Mm. And uh, navigating like, and now looking back, I can tell that like some of my friendships, I had like those school girl, those like school kid crushes on my friends. But mm -hmm. at, the at the time, I thought that's just what a normal friendship was between little girls, because you don't think about it as a little kid. Right, right. Um, uh, and then when I was around like 11 or 12, I started questioning sexuality 
but I didn't question gender yet because I didn't know that was an option. Hmm. So it wasn't until I was much older and I got to college that I started thinking about gender as something mm -hmm. that wasn't tied to my body parts. Gotcha. And did your did you ever feel that your sexuality um, like got in the way of you being at church other than kind of being teased? Not that that's nothing, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually the bullying had very little to do with me being not straight, which I thought was mm -hmm. interesting. It was just like, generally kids suck. Uh, right. And I'm like the few adults who knew that I wasn't straight or suspected were all really cool. So I was very lucky to be in a very supportive church environment where either people liked me and were on my side or they didn't have the the desire, the interest, or the environment to say something negative. Mm -hmm. And I, I was very fortunate that despite the kids in the youth group being rough, the youth group leaders themselves were really awesome people and folks who would involve me in, in activities, even if the kids weren't. Uh, like uh, Luann, who plays guitar and stuff, would do a lot of music things with me. And we, it actually, I, I still remember there was a funeral for an older person in the church that I knew. And I actually sang at the funeral with a group of the, with a couple of the youth group leaders. So, awesome. Yeah, so it's like I was heavily, heavily involved. And at that time, my mom was a single mom. And she, she was disabled, so she couldn't work much. Our church, fortunately, had an opening for a visitor to go out and visit the old folks, a little, a little extra money to help pay the bills. And that led to the church sponsoring her to go through a lay pastor program to get ordained in the Presbyterian church. Oh, wow. That's quite a transformation, huh? Yeah. Evolution. Yeah, she was she was an ultrasound tech who then was a stay-at-home mom, one on disability, worked as a body priest for a few years for a friend, and then a parish visitor to ordained minister. Fantastic. And then um and so after after high school, I guess when did drag come into your life? I was kind of an old one for drag. Mm. I, uh, I would sometimes get cast for male roles in junior high and high school. Maybe even some of the church like pageant productions. I, I, I have such a weird foggy memory sometimes of how many church productions there were since it felt like I was in every single one. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I would sometimes play the male characters, but I didn't really know about drag kings. I, I knew vaguely about drag queens from hearsay, but that was about it. When I got to undergrad, I saw drag queens on occasion at one of the bars out in Salt Lake City where I lived at the time. And as time progressed, I, I kind of was interested in it, but I'd never seen a king. I didn't know drag kings were a thing. Uh, and then when one of my friends was doing a fundraiser for Transgender Day of Remembrance, I wanted to help contribute to it. But I didn't feel comfortable singing. I didn't feel comfortable doing a lot of performances. So I decided to give drag a chance and knowing nothing about drag kings, nothing about doing drag, I bound myself down and put on, glued on some of my own hair clippings and called it drag. And did you love it right away? I did. I, I really did enjoy that experience. There were, uh, they're called, they call themselves the Cyberslots. It's a charity group out in Utah that does drag bingo. And they, oh, they mm -hmm. raise tons of money for charity. But they, they're glitter beard, camp drag, uh, group of queens and so they really were very very encouraging so it was one of those where I wish I'd met them sooner than I may have started drag repeatedly in Utah but unfortunately that's around the time when I was getting ready to move to Iowa for law school 
So it was actually about six months after I got to Iowa City that some of the queens started kind of encouraging me and uh, helping me find my way to start drag in a sense that wasn't just one charity fundraiser. Right. And around that time, what was your spiritual life like? So uh, through uh, undergraduate I would, and uh, up until I moved away from Utah, I was actually really involved in the Presbyterian Church still. I had been a deacon when I was in high school, and I was involved with the Presbyterian Church out in Utah, and I was an elder out there. Oh, excuse me. And it was a really awesome experience for me at the church. There were moments where a lot of the internal bickering and workings of things just drove me up a wall, because as an elder, there's all that, like, decision-making power and with it comes people who won't agree on things because what knives you should buy for the kitchen and let's waste an hour talking about what knives to buy for the kitchen and and me as a person who was in college and working full-time felt like these were the most ridiculous moments to be having but there were more important things uh but but i was very involved out there with that i was involved with the choir i liked going to church mm-hmm. but i knew even in high school that i didn't really align with Christianity for my personal beliefs. I, it started actually around confirmation that I started questioning a lot of what I personally believed, particularly mm-hmm. because the church where I grew up in Minnesota has the youth who are going to be confirmed write a statement of faith. And I don't know if that's universal in the Presbyterian church or not, but for me, the moment of writing a statement of faith and realizing that I didn't feel comfortable professing Jesus as my Lord and Savior. There's mm. a moment where I'm like, I don't think I'm a Christian. Uh, and and I never had really probed that idea before. Since for uh-huh. me, the involvement in church, the community was what Christianity was about at that time. I didn't tie it to that higher thought, even despite church services, despite songs. For me, it was purely the supportive community and the good works we did together. Right. And then I guess as I matured and I started to realize that Jesus didn't quite fit my personal beliefs why I was in, I, I started, even while I was still a Presbyterian, since the Presbyterian church is very okay with people exploring faith. Uh, and I was, I'm always going to be eternally grateful for that, that I never had anyone tell me I couldn't ask questions or I couldn't think about truth with a capital T versus truth with a lowercase t. Uh, I started looking at Islam and Judaism first. So I started mm-hmm. looking at ones where Jesus wasn't the last step in some ways. Uh, and and those still, I was just kind of like, yeah, I can't get down with the Old Testament God. So mm-hmm. Judaism was kind of out when you can't get down with Old Testament God. And then mm-hmm. Islam, it just wasn't fitting, especially with some of the more restrictive, like, ways of living. I didn't think that those were necessary were necessary for me personally to connect with God and my spirituality and to live an ethical life. So I'm like, okay, that's not not going to work either. And uh, I kind of was pulled back toward Taoism toward the end of my time in Utah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that had to do with remembering when I took martial arts in high school of all the things. And my sensei uh, was very focused on like energies and, and how sometimes the best 
defense is just disappearing. It's just that that going with the flow of someone's strike, getting out of their way is the best defense. And so I was started exploring that idea more of the connectedness of individuals, the connectedness of existence. And, and that really brought me into Taoism. Mm. And so Tao of Winnie the Pooh, like most people was my starting point since that book boils down a concept in a very easy to understand way. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was after I got into law school though that I started realizing that Taoism didn't quite fit either because the essence of just being to me wouldn't make the world better. Mm. Like that there's no imperative to do good necessarily built into the philosophy uh, in the way that like I was reading and interpreting it. So then I started looking into Buddhism more and now that's kind of where I'm at is uh, kind of Buddhism, kind of Tao, kind of my own thing, but a lot of, a lot of Buddhist readings since I do find a lot, I find a lot in the sutras that are interesting and then uh, there's a book called The Heart of Buddhist, of Buddhist Teaching, which is mm-hmm. really neat since it takes a different, a little bit of a different look on it and points out some of the greatest misconceptions with different ideas, like the Four Noble Truths and the statement, everything is suffering. And it, it explains why that's an oversimplification that you can't stop at everything is suffering because then you never get to, well, how do we stop it? How do we end suffering? That's what Buddhism is about. It's not about the suffering, but how do we end it? Right. Uh, and so there's also a Buddhism guide on Spotify, because that was one of my early ones that I started listening to constantly, since it was always five to 10 minute blips, perfect for commuting to kind of explore new ideas. So it starts at the very beginning and goes forward in a sense. Yeah. And did, did drag or your gender identity or sexuality um, ever conflict through that journey of trying to find where you're at now spirituality, spiritually? Not really. Uh, it conflicted more with my mom and individual rather than spirituality or even my personal like thoughts about like the Christian God. I didn't see him as conflicting with drag or being queer at all. Right. Uh, because if God is so intelligent and God is all these things and God doesn't make mistakes, clearly queer people can't be a mistake. Right. And then uh, my, when my mom was struggling with my gender identity as someone who's non-binary, mm-hmm. I actually found the Bible useful to try to help her understand who I was. Because the Bible will talk about God with feminine words and with uh-huh. masculine words. It'll talk about God's bosom and then 10 seconds later, talk about how butch he is. Right. And so I'm like, okay, like this, this kind of helps boil down the non-binary aspect a bit that, that if God has all genders encompassed, surely humanity in God's image can have more than just his gender genders. Mm. Yeah. I'd never, I'd never heard that explained like that before, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, when did you, um, when did you, uh, I guess, start identifying as being non-binary? It sounds like it might've been part of your uh, experience throughout life, but maybe just didn't have words for it or? That's really what it was, is I didn't have words for it. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm 31 now. The 90s were a different time. And when you grow up in a small town in the Midwest, it's an even more different time. Yeah. So for me, I think the reason when I started to realize my own discomfort 
And so I went far to the other side. It was like, if I can do girl perfectly, perfectly right, I'll be comfortable. And so I did mm-hmm. beauty pageants. Uh, and still, even when I was winning beauty pageants, it didn't feel right. I didn't feel like the person I would see in the mirror. But I was like, whatever, maybe this is just how it feels when you're unhappy and a teenager. Being a teenager sucks. Clearly, every teenager must experience this. <laughs> right. <laughs> then I get into college and I am performing the vagina monologues at my, uh, at my college. And I met my first trans woman. And through conversations with the first out trans woman I ever met, I started to think, well, maybe I'm not a girl. Hmm. The issue I hit, though, was that I knew I wasn't a guy. Gotcha. So at that time, I didn't know non-binary was even a thing. So I'm like, okay, there's binary trans people. And I like, I was like, okay, maybe I'm just a butch lesbian. There's so many options. Ah, what do I do? And my, my, my friend Dom, she was so patient and dealt with my text messages in the middle of the night as I was stressed and like, what do I do? What do I do now? Now that I know I'm not cis. And she literally would just say, you go to sleep. And, <laughs> and she's like, it's the middle of the night. You don't do anything. You just live your life and try to make it the best life you can. And, and I, I am always going to be very lucky that I had a, a trans woman who's significantly older than me to tell me this advice. And she, she was actually an elder in the uh, LDS church for a long time before transitioning. Mm. So she's someone who had a, a really difficult time coming to an understanding of herself, which made it really helpful to talk to her. That, that the idea that the way you are, however you are, that's okay. If you're not hurting anybody else, then you're fine. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be anything. You're okay. Uh, and, and I think that's, uh, that's really the most like powerful thing. And one of the things that she said to me, and I, I never know if I have the wording right, but uh, the memory of the wording, I think is just amazing. So I always tell it the same way. We give so much compassion to our neighbors. If one of our neighbors is having a hard time with anything, we, we feel bad for them. If our friends are, we give them this advice that, hey, it's going to be okay. It's all right. Like you are wonderful the way you are, but we never extend the same kindness to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so the greatest gift that we can do is to give our ourselves the same patience and kindness that we would give our best friend if they were describing the exact same situation. And I'm like, that was just like earth shattering as someone in my early twenties who was constantly like trying to do school, trying to do good at work, trying to balance everything. Right. And, uh, and then, oh, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> oh, and I, I was just going to say, when I got to law school, I met my first non-binary person. Uh, who was who was out anyways that I knew was non-binary and suddenly I started to realize okay well like that makes much more sense when I got to Chicago lots of non-binary folks are in Chicago yeah. and it was beautiful and I, I felt like there were people who liked me for the first time mm-hmm. and I was able to to know I had options like top surgery which was one of the best choices of my life uh, and, and that hormones are available to non-binary people as much as binary folks. And it, it's just amazing what having a community of similar individuals is like. Mm-hmm. 
for sure. It's magic to know that there are other people out there like you in some way. I mean, we're all different, but I know I, I, I was challenged a lot for a long time. Just I didn't have the words for what I was experiencing, and I didn't feel like I had permission to really explore parts of myself um, until I started seeing people who were living in a way that kind of like intrigued me and excited me. And I was like, I think I might be that or, or that adjacent or, you know, um, I was curious, I know for drag was a big part of um, me opening up around gender and my gender identity. How does drag relate to your gender identity, if at all? I think if nothing else, drag made me realize I was really hot masculine. So uh, it made it a lot, a lot more comforting. It also helped me learn about binders and safe binding. And so mm -hmm. through drag, learning about binders, learning about safe binding, uh, I already had the binders for drag. So I could start wearing them during the day and seeing if that's how I felt best every day. So I, I really don't think I would have gotten top surgery if it wasn't for drag helping me explore what my body would be like. Because if it wasn't for drag, I would have been like, oh, 35 bucks, that's too much. Too much to just try this thing. Versus right. in drag, you're like, gotta bind safely. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wear the binder, I'm gonna try it. And then I think it just built some confidence that I, that I deserved to feel as good as I do in drag all the time that i shouldn't mm -hmm. have to wait for a drag show on the weekend to feel like i look like myself gotcha and uh, i just want to acknowledge um hi hi to david and angel and there are a number of folks who've been out there sorry we haven't like taken a moment to acknowledge <laughs> you but we see you and we know you're there um we're gonna go ahead and just take a brief uh break we're gonna play like a little video clip and then we'll come back and we'll hear how mick chose his name So as before we went off to break, I mentioned that we were going to um, hear a little bit about how you came with your name. So would you like to tell us? Yeah, it's actually um, one of those where I couldn't come up with a name. But two weeks before the first time I was going to appear on stage, I had yelled at one of my guy friends and I told him he was a total McDouche. And like frustrated, frustrated, you're my roommate. Why did you ruin that shirt type stupid roommate fight? And uh, then when I needed a drag name, he, he was actually the one who suggested McDouche. He goes, why don't you call yourself McDouche? Cause who calls people that? And, <laughs> and so that became my drag name. Uh, it, it was one of those where I think I, over time it did morph. Originally it was like MC douche with an E on the end. 
And then mm-hmm. the first person to ever introduce me at a show told me I was a cute Scottish lad. So then it became N-I-C-K. And then over time I dropped the E. And it, and so it's just kind of stuck. If I could do it again, I'd probably choose a more family-friendly name since my favorite <laughs> events are usually working with kids. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> which, And so when I do like public library events, they call me just Mick. They're like, our friend That's Mick nice. or Mick D. And kids always think it's McDonald's. Mm. Gotcha. Uh, so, so it does work okay for kids as long as I take off half the last name. Mm-hmm. And I, um, in your in your bio that you shared with us, you mentioned a little bit about uh, toxic masculinity and how that kind of changed. It's changed with your relationship with Mick. Do you want to talk talk a little bit about that? Yeah. When I when I was first uh, performing as Mick, I went into the masculinity that we all think of when we think of men especially when you're in your 20s what you associate with what is a guy it happens that what it means to be a guy in their 20s is really gross like there is a lot of things like oh you're gonna smile at that girl then you're just gonna go up and dance with her she doesn't want that who told you she wanted that right but but that's our society it's so that's a normal way to meet a woman Mm -hmm. that we're teaching our young men that and so Mick was embodying bad behaviors like that without being able to realize some of these are bad behaviors. Mm. And then when I did realize they were bad behaviors, I tried the, well, I'm parodying it. I'm making fun of guys like that. Mm. But the problem is an audience, especially men who are that guy in a college town, don't see a parody. They see someone who is like embracing and praising their behavior. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, like the, the, the does a parody read as a parody or does it read as contributing is a huge issue. And it's by no means limited to toxic masculinity because I see the same thing when people want to do a number that comments on like rape culture. Like mm-hmm. at what point are you actually commenting on the problem versus contributing to it by the actions you're choosing? Like, because I'll see people do like, this is general, I don't have a specific person in mind like baby a cold outside you'll see people flip the genders as a way of like oh we're gonna shake it up we're gonna take down this culture but all you did was say she's gonna rape him versus he's gonna rape her it didn't right. eliminate the problem it just changed it a little mm-hmm. and and i guess in some ways like historically that was a good way to draw attention how it's weird and awkward but we're, we're to a point where the issue has grown from, we know baby it's cold outside is a problem. So right. how do we deal with it? Was there a specific situation or moment like that triggered that switch for you? Oh, honestly, it wasn't even something that, I, I was never someone to like go up and dance on the audience because I didn't like to be touched. Uh, I think if anything, it was watching other performers and how sometimes they would touch the audience and mm-hmm. noticing the discomfort of an audience member. And then when the performer was talked to about it, almost this moment of denial that that, that audience member was made uncomfortable. Gotcha. And I think that really forced me to kind of evaluate it, that why are drag performers, regardless of gender, regardless of the gender of their character on stage, uh, having such an uh, interesting experience with what is consent. And, and it kind of led me back to the idea of toxic masculinity because it's 
it's not just cis men who have learned really bad habits from this. It's also like cis women. It's also non-binary people. It's trans people. All of us suffer when, when toxic masculinity is allowed to run the room. Yeah. How, how would you describe Mick now? <laughs> Mick now is largely just whatever I'm going to have fun with doing. I've stopped trying to be a character in some ways. Like when I'm off stage, the second my foot steps off that stage, I'm not giving you a persona. I'm myself with makeup on because mm -hmm. I have decided that I want authentic experiences with folks and audience members the second my foot steps off that stage. Uh, and, and I know there are people who keep their characters the whole time and it's just not me. I'm always impressed by the people who can do it, but but for me, it just wasn't the right fit because I did want authentic connection, even, even though what I was doing was drag. Right. And so on stage, I'll do everything from characters inspired by video games to characters inspired by other pop culture references to uh, like my white trash characters are among my favorites. And that's largely, uh, largely just embracing a lot of the country vibes and stuff that I loved growing up and mm -hmm. growing up in a working class, almost exclusively white town uh, in the Midwest and, and having fun with the idea of a hat that says uh, I heart titties and beer as like uh, a look. Right. And with those guys, I do not want to parody, but you take it to such an extreme that that's clear it's parody because no one's walking around with that hat, a mullet, a blacked out tooth, like even the most far gone, like living in a trailer. I never saw anyone who looked like that in my trailer park growing up. So, right. <laughs> but it's, it's so fun <laughs> because it is a character. It's, it's the Larry, the cable guy where, you know, it's not real. Right. Right. Um, and where is your, uh, where does your, does your spirituality play out at all in your drag? Yes and no. It's a kind of interesting because I have done numbers that have uh, a religious influence. So I've done Take Me to Church is probably one of my most religious numbers. Mm -hmm. But it's an interesting one because I, I enter wearing robes and a stole and carrying a Bible and a communion glass. And as the song progresses, uh, the way I have it choreographed is like someone is searching for answers in the book and getting increasingly frustrated and frantic and tearing pages out and crumpling them and throwing them. And uh, uh, then my, my partner comes in dressed as the devil. Mm. And we have her flog me during it. And we have her smear blood. Wow. Your blood in the communion cup. Thank you, of course. Uh, and so it's like, it's a whole, it's a whole thing um, kind of trying to deal with when people are struggling going to the church for answers and, and like, just that like fight that they have, whether mm -hmm. that like when religion doesn't have the answers, what happens? And then living in Utah, something that I often saw with young LDS people is they would get out of the influence of the church as like a young teenager, maybe go on a mission, maybe not. And then they'd get to college and they'd go, they'd go to the far opposite and in ways that would make it dangerous for themselves. We had major issues with overdoses and kids drinking too much because they suddenly had so much freedom. And so it's, to me, that's one of those moments of like when the church doesn't have the answers, you go too far the other way sometimes. And so mm -hmm. it's, uh, 
that, that song just really, the way it sounds felt, felt perfect for me. And it's, it's fun because I zip off the robe and I have on like gay leather gear. Mm-hmm. So like I go all in on that one. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's in some ways, it sounds like an adult version of Jonah and the Whale that you, um, oh, you know, it's like a way of telling a story about spirituality and maybe even, you know, a relationship that somebody might be having with it. Yeah, that one is my most direct number. For, for like Ames Pride last year, there is, oh gosh, I can't even remember the band or the song name, uh, but there's a song, uh, it's about like uh, having the fire like inside of you. And it always mm-hmm. reminded me of like religious connotations. And so when I did Ames Pride last year, I did that for one of my numbers. And I actually had reached out to a bunch of local religious leaders who are LGBTQ affirming. And I had them join me on stage for like the last verse and chorus. And mm-hmm. just like people holding hands and holding signs of like love and support and just like assuring people who are struggling in their church because there are there are Christians who are struggling to find a home. There's Jewish people. There's all sorts of people who are struggling to find religious homes because their faith mm-hmm. is strong, but they can't find a place that they can share it. Right. Uh, and that's half the battle. So, so like for okay. me, that number was trying to make visible the people who would love and embrace people who mm. are searching. Yeah. That's so powerful because I think that, that the belief is, is that we're not, we're not out there we're not spiritual people. There aren't spiritual people that love us, you know, and the, the reality of it is, and that's a lot of why I do what I'm doing is just to kind of show people that no, like we exist. And some of us struggle mm-hmm. with our gender and our sexuality and how that relates with our spirituality where other folks, they don't even question it. It's like actually their spirituality and their faith is actually what allows them to exist in their, their fullest expression. Oh, thank you, Gina. Sorry, I just saw a compliment about Ames Pride. <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah, thanks yeah. so much, Gina. <clears throat> so what does your um what does your spiritual practice look like today? Like what are things that you do? Okay. Uh I I do a lot of reading and I I usually try to read I mean, I I like certain books more than others, but I I like to find books that are about Buddhism that are usually like four or five page chapters. Mm-hmm because then I can read one a day and spend a whole day thinking about that chapter and what this other person had to say about their experiences and what they're doing. Uh, I meditate. I recently splurged and bought myself a nice medic meditation cushion. And mm-hmm. let me tell you, everyone should buy one of these if they meditate because that buckwheat cushion is so much better than the floor or even a yoga mat. Right. Uh, yeah. I usually that's, meditate that's daily. Pretty- oh yeah. And uh, I, would, I, yeah, let's, go ahead. Oh, oh, uh, and I have started kind of poking around at different Buddhist temples in the Chicago region. Now that everything's on Zoom, I can mm-hmm. explore places where I where I feel comfortable, where I think I might want to learn more. Uh, usually, it's been a really interesting and positive experience. I have had like an awkward moment where. I didn't feel like getting up. So I was like laying in bed, still in pajamas and the, my camera came on on zoom and I was not expecting it. And so I feel bad for these people who didn't know me, who see this like, clear body in the camera very quickly. And then I hit, I turned it off and then they began their service and none of it was in English. So I'm like, that's mm-hmm. so cool. But also I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what I'm right. supposed to be doing. Uh, 
And so I, I tapped out of that one just because I was like, this is now doubly uncomfortable because now I'm that like weird white person who showed up and isn't even doing any of it right. Right. Yeah. So I, I really, was like, nope. <laughs> I related to the pillow comment. That's been my excuse for not meditating for, for years. Oh, I'll do it when I get the pillow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's so worth it. Oh, my, I, I have arthritis in both knees. So having that elevated pillow allows me to sit cross-legged, which I wouldn't usually be able to do. Mm -hmm. And so you had mentioned that your, your mother initially um, had some challenges with your gender. Um, and also she's Christian. Um, how does that play yeah. out for you now? Yeah, my mom right now uh, works at a Methodist church down in Arkansas, where she's the Christian education director. It's still interesting because she's like, she knows she kind of gets it, but she really doesn't. She still struggles mm -hmm. with pronouns. She still struggles with gendering. Uh, when I went down to visit her recently, I took her to the dentist and my mom had had sedation because it was a major procedure. And the dentist was like, oh, this young man's here to pick you up. And my mom's uh, like, no, my daughter's supposed to pick me up. And there was this <laughs> back and forth. And then my mom realized that the dentist thinks she can't go home yet because clearly she's had too much medication. Mm. <laughs> right, right. It was just kind of one of those funny moments where, where that was a wake-up call for her that the only person who's seeing a little girl when they look at me is her. It's her, yeah. So, uh, and everyone mm. else is seeing me. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like she's just struggling with, like, it doesn't sound like she's judging you for it. She just might not understand, or is it? It's, it's that, it's it's not so much a judgment thing. At first there was a little more judgment to it. Even when I came out as uh, not straight, there was more judgment to it because she had a hard time understanding. And she did that awful thing that some parents do of the, you're just seeking attention. Mm. And I'm like, no kid comes out as gay to be popular. I know, I'm right? I'm not in an acting school. Why do you think this would make me cool? Uh, and so I, it was kind of a continuation of that where, where not understanding it makes it a learning curve and a learning process for her. Mm -hmm. Now she's, uh, she's encountered a young person uh, who actually attends the church she's at now who doesn't identify as his gender. Mm -hmm. And so that's helping to force her to evaluate things. And I think seeing what this young person is going through with their own right. parents is helping my mom grow more quickly than anything else could have. Because as she sees this, this youth struggle, she basically decides that she doesn't want to be that mom who's making the youth struggle. Right. I have a um, podcast with my aunt. She's a conservative Christian. She identifies as a conservative Christian and um, she's accepted me as a transgender queer drag queen. Um, but there's been challenges still with us learning one another's language. And mm -hmm. um, and there's a certain amount of grace uh, that I think we have to afford one another. Um, how has that been for you and your mom? Like how, what's that, how is it balancing that allowing grace, but then also like, I don't know, like stating your, like stating your claim, I guess. You know, I, it's, it's one of those weird ones where I have found indirect ways is my favorite way to bring it up mm -hmm. because then it doesn't make her feel like I'm, because it's weird. It's always, it's always interesting because it feels judgmental when someone stands up for themselves because someone automatically feels like they've done wrong. Yeah. And so no matter how nice you try to be like, 
hey, by the way, you did it again, people can get very defensive sometimes because they, they feel bad and then they don't know what to do. And then it's just the whole thing. So like my partner has talked to her about that and that was helpful to kind of push things along. But uh, for us, it'll be more gentle things. Like we were in DC, I, I had a work conference in DC and she decided to tag along. And so my mom and I are in DC, we're out in front of the White House and there's a Latina woman speaking in Spanish, holding up a sign. And she's talking about uh, transgender rights, rights for transgender mm -hmm. women. And my mom was like, it'd be so much more effective if she spoke in English. And I'm like, mama, I don't know if she knows English and maybe her message isn't for you. And right. then from that, we were able to build on that conversation to talk about how that woman's sign is, because I, I, I know a bunch of languages because I've studied Finnish, German, Russian, Spanish, it's a mess of languages, but uh, we, we got to have a conversation about why, what that woman was talking about. Hmm. And then that's actually when I told her I had top surgery because she didn't know I had top surgery because I wasn't, I wasn't willing to put myself through that. So it was like a moment of self-care hmm. of I'm yeah. doing this for me. You'll find out when you find out. Uh, yeah. and, and even with hormones, it's not something that I talked to my mom about in advance because I knew that I wanted that to be a positive experience for me because it took so much to get there and to feel like that's safe and okay to do. Right. So I, uh, she actually didn't find out until I made a Facebook post about how I could finally sing along with Johnny Cash in his key mm. and sing his part. And I was so excited. I wanted to sing some Jackson with someone someday for a drag show. Mm -hmm. And, uh, one of the folks from the church youth group who who I love dearly asked my mom if I was on hormones and wanted to know what was going on so she could be supportive of me. Uh -huh. And and so that's actually how I got to have the conversation with my mom about hormones is then my mom mm -hmm. asked me about it because she's like, I told them there's no way. And I'm like, mom, <laughs> really? My voice has changed in the last year. You've, you've been around me, you know. Right. Uh, and, and so it's, it's moments like that where I let it come up uh, more organically. What was that um, process for you um, in coming to make those decisions around um, having top surgery and hormones? What was kind of your process of, I don't know, getting to that? Yeah. Well, for me, um, I really started binding almost constantly. Like every single day I was binding or in a sports bra during law school. And so I mm -hmm. knew what I wanted my body to be like. And I knew when I felt the least okay with my body and then when I felt least like myself uh and I was like I don't like that and I didn't really think about top surgery so I met someone here in Chicago that's a burlesque performer here who's non-binary not on hormones but had top surgery and I saw their results and we talked about it and we talked about their experience that I was like wow I could stop binding every day my body mm -hmm. could stop hurting constantly yeah. because that's the thing with binders is even if they're not dangerous, there's some pain, especially if you're above a B cup. Uh, so I was very, very lucky to meet like supportive folks here in the Chicago area that were willing to have the conversations with me, talk about their experiences. So I could determine if that was right for me. Mm -hmm. Hormones were a lot harder in part because of a fear of acne, because we all mm -hmm. remember, we all remember puberty. No one wants right. to sign up for puberty too usually. <laughs> And, right. and I knew, I knew testosterone is a beast for making uh, skin oily and giving you that cracking voice. And, and then 
the weird peach fuzz hair phase. And I'm like, I don't think I want any of that. Uh, And I actually scheduled and canceled multiple appointments with Howard Brown. I wasn't sure. Mm, Yeah. And uh, the tipping point for me was actually when my stepdad got diagnosed with a brain tumor. So my my Mm. mom had a brain tumor since I was 10. And then my stepdad got diagnosed with one a few years ago. Wow. Uh, And yeah, he he had like a biopsy and it wasn't good. It, It was just not looking good. And it was like that moment for me was when I was like, okay, he just barely retired and this is the news he's getting. Like life is clearly so short and it doesn't go as we planned. And, and it just felt like what's the sense in waiting? Like Mm. at that time I was 29, going to be 30. And I'm sitting there like, man, if I wait, all that's going to happen is I'm going to be 35. I'm going to be 40. I'm going to be 45. I'm going to be 50 and still feel this way about myself. Why would I do that when I could spend the most of my life living authentically? I already wasted, like, well, wasted isn't the right word because I didn't feel as confined by gender as some folks might who are in more traditional situations. But it's almost like I spent enough time not feeling 100% present in my body that why would I want to spend any more time not being present and not being in the moment with myself? Yeah. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I really identified. I've, I had an appointment to do hormones and then I wouldn't answer the phone and didn't follow up with that too. So I've kind of been in that spot. And I've also like, I've also been like, well, if that's going to be that, like, if you're like, why a postpone that, like, if that's where you're going, why, why take so long? But there's also like an element of like, if it needs to take that long, I guess it needs to take that long, but it's, yeah, I, I definitely identify with that. Like, uh, I don't know what to do. Um, and one of my biggest things too was like, what if I get facial hair and I hate it? And then uh, a trans woman in Chicago was the one who told me this one. She goes, honey, you're ridiculous. You could just come get laser hair removal with us. <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit, I could go on tea, decide I hate facial hair and just get laser hair removal. An option I never thought of. Right. Yeah. None of it is that un doable, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's, did you, did you want, um, we're, we're running about at the end of time. Was there anything that you wanted to share with the audience before we go? Oh, I don't think I have anything in particular, uh, happy to field questions or whatever, if, if there are any out there, I, uh, oh, and by the way, thank you, Susie, for complimenting my jacket. Right. I was going to say, there's been a lot of compliments, um, and comments for sure. <laughs> Um, and so we have uh, put up Mix um, Instagram as well. So if you want to follow him on Instagram, and then there's also Venmo if you want to send some coin in uh, Mix Direction. I'm sure that he would appreciate that. Put it to good use. Uh, so I wanted to thank you so much for um, joining me this evening and sharing a bit of yourself um, with us. Um, oh, also Juan Pablo is asking, where do you perform? Where could somebody watch you? Ah. Uh. Well, currently I perform through twitch.tv like most drag performers in America. Uh, I mean, the next time you can see me, it will actually be for a new show called Monarchs that Whimsy Stiff is putting on for individuals who are on the autism spectrum. So he's he's only casting folks who are on the spectrum, at least for this first one. But the whole show is going, the goal is to be sensory friendly. So we're doing things like adding subtitles 
uh, not having flashing lights or fast moving lights, having sound that stays level the whole way. So that's really awesome. And I think that's come in middle of February. I don't remember the exact date. And then the next one will be the Dragon Spirituality Show. All right. Uh, as far as um, online stuff. Fantastic. Uh, so in Chicago, Gen oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say when it reopens, you can usually catch me at Berlin, Scarlet, Charlie's, or The Call. Uh, those are the bars that tend to book the most inclusively for inc having drag kings there. So those mm -hmm. are the ones where you'll find pretty much any kings in Chicago at. Uh, and uh, my, my favorite is always Geek House because it's cosplay. So cosplay mm -hmm. drag with a theme is so much that, fun in my mind anyway yeah <laughs> so much fun well thank thanks again so much i also wanted to let folks know that um uh we're also like helping uh there's also an event happening tonight it's called the queer state of union um and so um a good friend of mine jeremy um they have put together this four-hour event of djs and speakers um out of chicago um they're actually just on another broadcast within uh the same platform so um juan pablo is going to go ahead and put up a link of how you can connect with that. I'll also repost the link on my socials. Um, but yeah, search for the uh, Queer State of the Union. Um, next week uh, will be our third episode and we will um, be, I'll be interviewing Stargirl um, who has some amazing makeup, um, which of which you have some amazing makeup as well. I didn't even go there. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Great. Uh, Stargirl and I have a, did a show together, gosh, it was like two months after my top surgery where I was the Tin Man, and I think she was the Scarecrow, because it was uh, a Wizard of Oz one, so it, it was quite the, quite the show. Awesome, fantastic. Um, so, yeah, so we'll be here same time, same place next week. Um, feel, please do share this um, video if you found it interesting to um, people that you think might enjoy it. Um, if you want to watch it again later, you can find it on YouTube at Urban Village Church or A Queer Chaplain. Um, and then we also do have it on audio if folks uh, prefer to listen to it um, through um, basically anywhere um, people listen to podcasts. You can search for A Queer Chaplain or Urban Village Church, and you should be able to come across our interview today, as well as past interviews with uh, other drag queens, trans folks, and other faith leaders. So um, thanks so much. Um, have a great rest of your inauguration day. Um, and thanks so much. Thanks again, uh, Mick, for joining us. Take care and yeah, thank you.